From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. I think it might also be that you fall in love with this form of storytelling, that you fall in love with the idea of showing people instead of um, explaining it to people. You think of George Floyd's murder. How can you tell that story without showing the video, right? Is that not what we're going to talk about 20 years from now? That's Yamish Alcindor. She's the White House correspondent for PBS NewsHour and recently became the host of PBS's Washington Week, a public affairs show most closely associated with its longtime moderator, the late Gwen Ifill. Yamish has been reporting since high school when she interned at a local newspaper. Before she got to PBS, she was a reporter at the New York Times. Beyond her role as an anchor, she gained national attention as a frequent target of former President Trump. Last week, Yamish arrived home after accompanying President Biden to Europe on his first international trip to meet with foreign leaders, including Russian President Vladimir Putin. Yamish and I talk about Biden's diplomacy, the differences between print and broadcast journalism, and how she stays calm in moments of high stress. That's coming up. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Before I get to your questions, just a reminder. This week's episode of Now and Then, our new podcast hosted by Heather Cox Richardson and Joanne Friedman, is out. The topic this week is cults and QAnon. Subscribe for free and listen on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in an email from Jennifer, who has actually two questions. Derek Chauvin's sentencing is Friday. How many years do you think he will get? And also, Chauvin's lawyers argued that their client is the, quote, product of a broken system, end quote. Do you think that argument will sway the judge at all? So thanks for your questions, Jennifer. Of course, you're referring to the long-awaited sentencing of former police officer Derek Chauvin from Minneapolis who was convicted on three counts related to his killing of George Floyd. So prediction is always difficult. It's a very individualized decision. Judges are sometimes people who surprise folks when they sentence. Although in this case, I think it's fair to say that a fairly significant sentence will be opposed on Derek Chauvin, given the nature of the case, given the nature of the evidence we saw in the case, given how much the judge knows about the conduct of Derek Chauvin, and given the relatively quick verdict of guilty on all the counts. Now, 
The prosecutors have asked for a 30-year sentence, which is, in the circumstances, arguably fair and appropriate. On the other hand, at the other end of the spectrum, the defense lawyer has argued, somewhat not credibly, for time served. And recall that Derek Chauvin has been in custody since he was remanded at the moment of his conviction a couple of months ago. I think I can safely predict that there's no way on earth that he's going to get time served. That doesn't seem commensurate with the conduct and with the reputation of the judge in the case, Judge Cahill. The other reason we know it'll be a somewhat significant sentence is that the judge has already made a finding that there were four aggravating factors that militate in favor of a heavier sentence. What were those aggravating factors under Minnesota law? One, and you'll remember this from the testimony and the evidence if you watch any of the trial, one, that the defendant abused a position of trust and authority. Obviously, he was a police officer and a senior police officer at that. Two, the defendant treated George Floyd with a particular cruelty. All you have to do is watch the videotape to see that. Three, children were present during the commission of the offense. That was proven easily at the trial and shown. And four, defendant committed the crime as a group with the active participation of at least three other persons, namely the three other police officers, who were still awaiting trial with respect to their own charges. So a combination of the nature of the conduct, the egregiousness of it, the finding of the aggravating factors, and the request from the prosecutors, I think signals, in my view, and I could be wrong, that we're looking at a sentence in the 20 to 30 year range. As to your second question, the argument that Derek Chauvin is the product of a broken system, I think falls flat, and that's an understatement. As I think most people who have followed the issue and followed the trial and followed the consequences and the uproar over the killing of George Floyd and the movement in favor of criminal justice reform, they can all attest that Derek Chauvin does not appear to be a product of a broken system. He is what is broken about the system. He's the embodiment of it. And as Joyce Vance and I discussed on the Cafe Insider this week, you know, it is an interesting strategy to take the most extreme view on behalf of your client to try to save him jail time when every single indication is that he will get a substantial sentence, that the defense lawyer on behalf of Derek Chauvin might have had more credibility if he had suggested some jail sentence is appropriate, but not time served. And I think that the combination of no seeming remorse, maybe he'll make a statement in which he does express remorse, but I don't think so. The combination of Derek Chauvin not expressing remorse, not expressing or seeming to express any contrition, his lawyer asking for time served, and painting Derek Chauvin as some kind of victim in the whole regime of policing in this country and what he calls a broken system, I don't think that's going to fly. One final thing, you should know that whatever sentence Chauvin gets, under Minnesota law, it's presumed that a defendant with good behavior will serve two-thirds of the penalty in prison, and the rest will be on parole. This question comes in an email from Emily, who asks, can you explain DOJ's reversal of Trump-era asylum rules? What will the impact of that decision be? And of course, there has been a debate over the last couple of months about what kinds of policies the current Justice Department under the leadership of Merrick Garland is persisting in and what kinds of policies they're retracting or changing or reversing. And there's some controversy about some of those things, including whether or not secret memos should be shared with the public and whether or not Donald Trump should continue to be defended by the Justice Department in a private suit. But on one issue that you ask about, Emily, there has been a change of heart, and I think it is for good reason, and I think it's a good change of heart. It has long been the case that under asylum rules, someone who seeks to be a refugee in the United States can present themselves, and if certain circumstances and conditions are met, their application for refugee status and asylum can be considered and granted. The basis on which someone can become an asylee 
is if they can establish a well-founded fear of persecution back in their native country, a well-founded fear of persecution on account of their race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. Now, in previous administrations, that last category, membership in a particular social group, has always been interpreted to mean that you could get protection as an asylee, potentially, if you have a well-founded fear that you will face domestic abuse, domestic violence, or gang violence. Under Jeff Sessions, in the Trump administration, he felt that those asylum claims in that last category, particular social group, were interpreted overly broadly, that it was giving too much benefit to too many people, and domestic violence and gang violence were a, a kind of, in his words, private violence that shouldn't qualify you to become an asylee. And so what happened in the last week is the Attorney General Merrick Garland vacated the prior Attorney General decisions in a couple of matters that now make it clear that the Board of Immigration Appeals within the Justice Department should no longer follow those decisions and should instead revert to prior precedent under which victims of gang violence and domestic violence can properly present a case for asylum status in the U.S. And I think that's a good thing. This question comes in an email from Amy. What do you make of the news that prosecutors in the Manhattan DA's office are investigating a Trump organization executive named Matthew Calamari? Do you think they're leaning on him to flip on Trump? Lots of jokes I can make here with a name, but I'll refrain. Thanks, Preet. Yes, I've seen some of those jokes on social media. They're not very good. You know, will Calamari be fried, et cetera, et cetera. Look, I think it's interesting. We've been talking about various other folks that the Manhattan DA's office has been investigating and perhaps putting into the grand jury and perhaps even further building a case against. We know about the CFO. We know about the controller. And now we have someone, Matthew Calamari, who started out as Trump's bodyguard and then eventually was promoted to be the COO or the chief operating officer of the Trump organization. So a couple of things that are interesting about this pattern of investigative practice, these are all senior people in the Trump organization. They can all be expected to have lots of inside knowledge about the finances and about the organizational structure and about who did what for what reason. They probably also have access to information and communications that maybe were not put in writing that indicate the state of mind of Donald Trump and other people in connection with financial transactions and tax payments that they made or didn't make. Another thing they have in common is they're longtime members of the Trump organization, which on the one hand, as I just said, means that they have access to a lot of information that might be helpful to prosecutors, but on the other hand, maybe renders them more loyal to Trump than to their own desire not to be in prison for a long period of time. And people keep asking the question, as you have, do you think that such and such person will flip? It's a personal decision. It depends on how strong the case is against them. It depends on what their loyalty tells them to do. Many, many, many people flip. Some don't. I think what has become more and more clear is that the Manhattan DA's office is still a step away from being able to charge someone in a high position like Donald Trump. And that's why they're looking very, very hard at figuring out what kind of criminal cases they can make against these other executives, very senior, but not at the very top, to convince them, persuade them, compel them to sign a cooperation agreement and give substantial assistance in a prosecution of someone else up to and including Donald Trump. What's interesting about the reporting related to Weisselberg, the CFO, and the COO, Matthew Calamari, is it looks like the things that they are going after them for are failure to pay taxes on certain kinds of fringe benefits. The leasing of apartments and the leasing of automobiles and some other such things that depending on the circumstances and depending on the rules would be income on which one has to pay taxes. They do not tend to be, in my experience, the thrust of a criminal investigation. In other words, the core of a broad criminal investigation. It looks like they're trying to find things 
that will subject these individuals to a criminal charge and a significant criminal sentence so that they'll flip. So those charges don't seem core to what they're otherwise looking at, which is the way that the Trump organization handled tax payments and made representations to financial institutions to get loans. And as I mentioned when we first discussed Alan Weisselberg on the show, it does seem a little odd to me that the reporting suggests that the criminality that they're looking at with respect to Weisselberg and also Calamari does not seem to have to do with the central things that they're looking at with respect to the Trump organization. You know, general payment of taxes, tax avoidance, and representations made to financial institutions for the purpose of getting loans, and representations in particular about the value of assets, either inflating them or deflating them when it suited them. These seem to be tangential to that, collateral to that, for the purpose of flipping them. And you would kind of expect, and maybe this, maybe this is true, they just don't have reporting on it, you would kind of expect that the people at the top of the organization would also be in the crosshairs with respect to what the fundamental investigation is about, and that they might be co-conspirators with Donald Trump and others. But right now, it doesn't look that way. Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your website look pretty great, too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code TUNED. My guest this week is Yamish Alcindor. She's a White House correspondent and host of Washington Week at PBS. Yamis joins me on the heels of her trip with President Biden abroad and reflects on the packed press schedule, the meeting with Putin, and why the G7 summit felt like a family reunion. Yamish Alcindor, welcome to the show. 
Thanks for having me. You know, we wanted to have you come some time ago, so I'm glad you're finally here. In the interim, you have become the host of Washington Week. Congratulations. Thank you so much. I'm so excited about the show and feel so, so blessed and honored to be helming the chair at Washington Week. Are you nervous? Are you excited? Are you pumped? What's the best word to describe how you feel about that? I'm nervous and excited and actually also really feeling blessed. This was a seat that was helmed by a personal mentor of mine, Gwen Eiffel, um, and I know how much the show meant to her. So to have the exact seat as as someone I idolized is sort of mind-blowing. Um, I'm also nervous because there's such expectations, and I, I'm someone who really thinks about um, very deeply what I want the show to reflect and feel, and I want it to be relevant and to feel fresh and to feel like it's in it's following in the great legacy of the show while also being something that is is mine and it and is and is good and is and is the kind of TV that people want to sit down on a Friday night to watch. So I'm I'm a little nervous, um, but definitely definitely excited. So you mentioned Gwen Eiffel, who was a giant, and I remember being in LaGuardia Airport when I heard that she had passed uh, far too early. What did she mean to you? She meant representation. She meant someone who looked like me living in this amazing truth and living her dreams. She was holding people accountable. She was integrity. She was someone who was fearless and brave and someone who also who who personally helped other people behind her. I would not be here if I wasn't if it wasn't for women like Gwen Eiffel, who not just showed the way, but also took the time to to give me a hand up when I needed it, to tell me that I was worthy, that I earned everything that I've gotten. Those are the kind of people um, that instill confidence in the next generation that are the reason why I think we'll, we'll see another generation of amazing journalists and in particular amazing black women journalists coming up. Will you do anything differently or consciously differently? I think for me, I I will think about um, how politics impacts people's daily lives. And really, that means um, having the conversation talk about not just, I think, the power brokers in Washington, but also bringing in what's going on in the states, bringing in video of of the voices of everyday people, working class people, immigrants, vulnerable populations into the show. So I think I'm I'm probably going to lean a little bit into a little bit more into video and really trying to make it of course a story about Washington but also a, a story about how Washington is impacting people's lives. I think that might feel a little different for people. I'm also excited um, to, in some ways to, to really follow in Gwen's footsteps when it comes to doing specials. Gwen never only let Washington Week be about 30 minutes around the table. She had town halls. She went on the road. She met people. Those are the things that I'd like to do um, in her mold, but also do differently and go different places that she didn't go um, and, and meet people that maybe she didn't she didn't get to meet. Do you have any specials in the works? Um, not right now that I can talk about, but I definitely have a lot of ideas. It's just you and me. It's just us. <laughs> can you say the general uh, subject matter of the special? I mean, I would just say it's it's politics. It's people's lives. Is it about aliens, Yamish? 
Okay, so I've really wanted to do a UFO, at least extra. <laughs> you and should. I haven't gotten Why around to you? it. You haven't gotten as, around to it. As a kid who grew up watching Unsolved Mysteries instead of cartoons, like that was my favorite show was Unsolved Mysteries. I am really, really fighting the, 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 the urge to do a whole UFO special. Why would you fight that urge? Just um, do because it. right now, <laughs> right? I think because there are so many other things that need to be covered too, right? I know. But like, I, I feel like the UFO thing has been undercovered. And, I mean, and I would like someone smart like it. you. Yeah, but come on. We need, we need some PBS attention to this. Right. <laughs> so you, you used to be at the New York Times. I did. As a, as a print journalist. And so I have a number of questions about that. Mm-hmm. What's harder, print journalism or broadcast journalism? It's hard. To, I don't think that I could definitively say what's harder overall. I can say what was harder for me. What was yeah. harder for me was broadcast because I'm a natural writer. I've been a writer since I can remember being able to spell my name. I've always loved writing. It's it's my personal therapy. It's my it's how I get my feelings out. It's how I just talk to the world naturally. It, it, it's in writing. Um, and I had been a writer for so long that when I got to the New York Times, and of course I was intimidated by the idea of the New York Times, I still lean into the idea that I knew how to write. And that that was a skill that would carry me. And I was able to do that and, and to feel comfortable in that newsroom and to, and to have great editors who helped mold me into an even better writer. For broadcast, it was completely something that I did not think I was ever going to get into. And learning how to to really talk to people, how to maybe sometimes slow down my speech, how to, how to figure out how to condense something that I would spend 1,400 words on into a minute and a half. Um, but also how to let images tell a story so that the words are so particular and so precise. That was very, very hard for me. Um, and anchoring, I'm, I've never, I never thought I was going to be an anchor. I didn't set out to be an anchor. So now that I'm anchoring my own show, I remember at the beginning of the show, it's only, I've only been in the chair for about a month and a half now, but I remember being very, very nervous about reading a teleprompter, thinking that people were, were going to say, you know, that it was staccato, that I, that I didn't know how to read a teleprompter, when in fact, for me, the biggest challenge has been molding the show, making sure that it, that we're hitting the right segments, that we have the right sound, that the, the script is tight. Not even the way that I'm reading it on the teleprompter, but that the way that it's written is the way that it should be written. And that our guests reflect what we want people to be thinking about that week. And, and also that we can go and lean into a George Floyd special and say, OK, there's going to be other news happening. But I want to this week only focus on this one issue, which we did with the anniversary of George Floyd's murder. So I think broadcast for me has been tougher. Well, I guess for the teleprompter issues, did you prep in any way? Did you watch Anchorman several times? <laughs> I didn't, but I was able, I, I got, I'm, I'm lucky that I'm able to see anchors do their jobs all the time between NewsHour and MSNBC and then growing up, um, watching the local news that I know what a really, really good anchor looks like. Um, and I also know that I don't want to be anyone but myself. So I also think that I'm taking the skills that I've watched other anchors do while also making sure that I'm, I'm completely who you would meet in the grocery store. You know, when I was thinking about this interview and your transition from print to broadcast, I was thinking to myself, you know, I can name off the top of my head a number of people, including friends of mine, who went from print to broadcast. I can't think of really anybody and maybe I'm just um, blanking, who went from broadcast to print. Can you? And and if not, why do you think that that transition seems to be one way only? I can't think of anyone who went from broadcast to print. Um, Once people have seen the big lights, they, they can't go back. I don't, I don't know 
if that's it. I, I think it might also be that you fall in love with this form of storytelling, that you fall in love with the idea of showing people instead of um, explaining it to people. You think of George Floyd's murder. Um, you could write, there were so many stories. The, the Washington Post run, won a Polk Award. Some of my friends on that project, Tolu and Robert Samuels, did amazing work writing about George Floyd's life. But how can you tell that story without showing the video, right? Is that not what we're going to talk about 20 years from now? It's it's that it's watching the trial. Um, it's watching Omar from CNN get arrested, right? It's 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 my my interviews that I was able to do with his family as they were able to explain what he meant to me. Those are the things that keep people in broadcast because it's 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 the way that we will remember history. I want to talk about, and I'm sure you're expecting these questions. Some of your interactions with the president who uh, was previously in that office, Donald Trump, and you know he he had a contentious relationship with the press, but we'll get to President Biden also. It's not unusual for presidents to have, or any politician to have, a somewhat contentious relationship, at least from time to time, with the press. But I think you know what I'm going to ask about. There was this occasion during a coronavirus briefing that President Trump was giving back last year, on March 30th of 2020, when you asked a um, reasonable question. You've said repeatedly that you think that some of the equipment that governors are requesting, they don't actually need. You said... New York might need I, that I might not need thirty thousand. You said it on Sean Hannity's on, Fox News. You said you know, that why you don't, might. Why don't you some, people act? Let, let me ask you. You said why some don't states, you act? Why don't you act in a little more positive? It's always trying to my get question you, to you get is, you get you. And you know what? That's why nobody trusts the media anymore. My That's question why to you is, how is that going to impact? Excuse me, you didn't hear me. That's why you used to work for the Times and now you work for somebody else. Look, let me tell you something. Be nice. Don't Mr. Be President, threatening. my question don't is: Don't be threatening. Now, when that's going on. And the whole world is watching. What's going through your head? What's going through my head is that there's probably someone at a hospital right now who might need a ventilator, who's really worried that they won't have one and that that person needs an answer. Are you thinking this is becoming a thing between me and the president as opposed to about the factual issue that you're delving into? I'm thinking about people who were dying. I'm thinking about the idea that our country was terrified, that I had family members in Miami who were older, who were diabetic, who were scared for their lives. And I was thinking, I hope that this president really has an answer for a country who does not have time for the drama and the back and forth. I'm hoping that he really, really, really is going to tell us, yes, we have enough ventilators. When he said, don't be threatening, were you taken aback by that? I wasn't taken aback. I'm an African-American woman who has been in the media for a long time. I've been told all sorts. Let me ask you this question. At that time, did you have the nuclear codes or an army at your back? (laughs) I had no (laughs) nuclear codes. I had no, I had an army of Haitian praying mothers. Well, (laughs) that's an army. But they weren't, but they Uh, weren't present at the White House at that moment, were they? No. But the president, uh, yeah. Did you, did you have a secret service detail, armed secret service detail? No. He did. I did not. But you're the threatening one. (laughs) It's it's kind of amazing to me. He then says, we're all on the same team. We're all on the same team. He says it twice. You know, it's an interesting question. Is that accurate? Do you think as a journalist that you're on the same team as the president because we're all Americans and we all care about getting over the coronavirus? Or do you think of yourself in a different way? 
not sure that I can answer that question only because I don't know what, what the meaning of team is in, in the way that he was using it. Of course, we're all Americans. Of course, having just come back from a, an eight-day trip with President Biden, um, there was there's obviously this sense that America, outside of the United States, that we are Americans, that we want our country to be safe, to be protected, to be healthy. Um, but I think when you think about the way that the president was misleading the American population and not wanting to answer basic questions about testing and ventilators, I don't know what that means to be all on the same team. I can say that I was on the um, I was on the team of truth and of trying to get real answers for people who were, again, terrified, because I think. You know, I, I know that there's so, so much kind of coverage of the back and forth and the, and, and the kind of the interpersonal relationships between the president and the press and all the people that he was um, attacking. But I think at the end of the day, I think of journalism as a service. And I think of how scary 2020 was, right? Having lost people that I loved. I literally was thinking the reason why I got into journalism is because we need people who are going to press presidents for actual answers about people's lives. And when you, you know, you asked me the question about was I taken aback when he called me threatening? I said, I say no. And I think I say no for a couple of reasons. One, because again, I was really thinking about those people. But two, as an African-American woman who has been in media now for a long time, I've been told things about myself that I know not to be true. I've been, I've had supervisors not believe in me, not think I had what it takes, what it takes to be an anchor or to be a, to be a writer or to work at the New York Times. I've had people take a, a me not smiling as meaning that I'm angry. As an African-American, you just learn to not be caught up in what people think about you and to be, and to know what you yourself are trying to do in the mission for your life. And you just go and do that and not get worried about what people think about you. Because if you get bogged down in that, you'll be bogged down in stereotypes all, all your life. Now, when that happens, when supervisors say the things that they say and they make clear they don't believe in you, is that something that motivates you or at times does it set you back or a combination of the two? I think it's both. I think it's motivating and it's sometimes heartbreaking. I, I remember when I was a, young, a younger journalist calling my mentors in tears saying, you know, this person said I couldn't, you know, I'm not the, the I don't have what it takes to be a great journalist or this person said I'm not pretty enough to be on on TV and Luckily for me, I have a mom who is the strongest person that I know. She's She was a social worker for three decades, three and a half decades, came to this country um, as a Haitian immigrant and and worked her way to getting a PhD, as my as, as did my father um, coming from Haiti. So for me, I, I realized that I'm coming from a, from a line of people who people didn't believe in and that I'm not the first person and won't be the last person to encounter people who just simply don't think that you have um, what it takes to, to be great and or that you haven't earned what, what, what is rightfully yours. But I've realized that it's both motivating and I think at times if you're human, it's, it's a little sad. You want to name any names? Of course. It's just us. It's just you and me. <laughs> That's a no. Have, have you heard from any of those people? Since your um, overwhelming success, anybody said, you know, I was wrong? Has anybody said, I'm sorry I said what I said or did what I did? Or have you reached out to any of them? So I'm just wondering how in the years since some of those incidents happened that you mentioned with some pain, if you've had any back and forth. No, I, I haven't reached out to them. They haven't reached out to me. 
Um, and I'm lucky that I have people, the people that do reach out to me were the people who have motivated me and, and supported me. And I tell young journalists all the time, because I know I've now had to counsel young women and men who have been told themselves, oh, you don't have the experience or whatever it is that's on this checklist that someone thinks that you don't have. I now find myself repeating the advice that Gwen and, and that Athalia Knight, who's a really good friend of hers and so many other women gave me, which is don't be distracted. Don't be caught up in whatever the whether people think about you. You have a mission, you have a goal, and you have people who believe in you. So I don't reach out to those people. I just know that I pay it forward by equipping the next generation with, with some of the advice that I got. And what's the best advice you give them? The best advice I give them is, I think there's two things. One, if you're nervous, it's a good thing. It means that you care about this. It means that you understand um, the weight of the responsibility especially as a journalist. So it's okay to be at the New York Times or the Washington Post or wherever you end up and be nervous in that newsroom because it will motivate you to not get things wrong, to be accurate, to be fair, to be caring. Um, and then I also tell people, don't get caught up in whatever's going on around you. Don't. It doesn't matter what people think about you. What matters is the work that you're doing, and that will be the thing that shines through. So I want to go back to another incident with President Trump and just talk generally about what the relationship should be between the press and a president, whether it's a Democrat or a Republican. And this was back in November of 2018 after the midterm elections. And you asked Donald Trump. On the campaign trail, you called yourself a nationalist. Some people saw that as emboldening white nationalists. Now people are also saying that the president. I don't know why you'd that say that. Pres- such a racist there question. There are some people that say that yeah. now the Republican Party is seen as supporting white nationalists oh, because of your rhetoric. That. I don't what do you that. make of that? I don't believe What were you thinking then? I was thinking... Wow, he really just said that. <laughs> and I was thinking, he did. I was, once again, because that, that was the first time that like we had an interaction that I was like, wait, what? Um, so that was that was November two thousand eighteen. I remember that, and your expression. You must be really good at poker. Are you very good at poker? I don't play poker. You should play. Here's two things you should do when we're done with the show. You should play poker, and you should set up a special on the UFOs. Okay. All right. So so you're thinking. <laughs> What did he say and how were you processing what he said? I was processing it by thinking he's deflecting the question because as a journalist, you're taught to listen really intently and to try to make sure that your answers actually, that your question is actually being answered. So I remember thinking, okay, wow, he really just said that. He called it racist. And two, he's not answering me. And that's that's an issue um, because you yes or no, are you trying to embolden white nationalists, white supremacists? We need to know. And I think, you know, fast forward past January 6th and and, and all the in, the in the conversation that our nation is happening. Isn't that one of the, the defining questions of the Trump presidency now? Were you really trying to embolden these racist, crazy people who then broke into our capital? Or, were, or was this kind of unintentional and you were just kind of saying this out of political expediency? So I think that that underlying question about the role of white supremacy in his um, administration, from a journalistic point of view, I know there are a lot of people who are critical of the president, of course, who would say, of course, he's racist. Of course, he was trying to do this. That's not the stance that I would take because I'm a journalist. But I think that that's the question that I would say, if you look at four years of, of Donald Trump, that is the question. Does it occur to you ever in those moments either with a sitting president or one of the other public officials you've interviewed over the years, when they make an accusation like that, you know, accuse you of being threatening when you're not, or of asking a racist question when it's not, do you ever think to yourself, in this moment I should defend myself and respond and rebut? I don't because I'm really thinking of it as it's not about me. Journalism is supposed to be it's not about you. If you're the, the, Another big thing that you're taught 
is you don't want to be the story. So and I, I, the last thing I'm trying to do is get into a back and forth with the president of the United States, a personal back and forth to try to defend myself. I was, you know, in, in the aftermath, I was a little surprised that he knew that I had worked for the New York Times um, and that I had switched jobs because I, you don't think that the president of the United States knows your resume per se, right? But at the end of the day, I, I don't, I, in the moment, I'm not thinking, oh yeah, I have to really defend my honor. I'm thinking he's not answering the question. This is the leader of the quote-unquote free world is the way that we often describe the president. He's the leader of the United States. And a lot of times, especially last in 2020, we're in the middle of like a literal pandemic. I need you to, to give us some answers, like for real. Like This is not kind of, you know, just for fun. Well, you talk about this, this journalistic principle of not becoming the story. And I know you take that to heart because um, I went back and I looked and I direct messaged you a couple of days after that incident with Trump in March of 2020. I, I, I think I, I DM'd you, as they say, on April 2nd to ask you to come on the podcast. And you very politely said that you wouldn't be able to do that. And then in preparing for the interview, I realized you, you, you didn't do any press after that. The Washington Post asked for you, and a spokesman for PBS NewsHour said that you were not available. Uh, and they made a statement on your behalf about how uh, it says, Yamish is a highly professional, talented reporter. We cannot be more proud to have her as part of the PBS NewsHour. She's doing exactly what is expected of a free press in our democracy. And that was another attempt not to make it about yourself. And yet, you became a big story in part because you were so unflappable and handled it with such grace and poise. Did that surprise you? It didn't. Su- I mean, yes, it surprised me because I think as a reporter, especially when it's a, someone who gets into print, people don't know what you even look like. People with a name like Yamish Alcindor, people couldn't even say my name for the first, I don't know, 10 years. I was, I was in I know media, the right? feeling. I know the feeling. <laughs> so for me to for, for me to go from that to then it's like, oh, Yamish, it's a one word. I don't even have to say her last name. Everyone knows who I'm talking about. I think that that's heartening. I also think it's heartening that people were comparing me to all the great journalists that I grew up um, idolizing. I think that that to me in some ways reminded me that I was doing my life's passion and I was exactly where I needed to be. I was in my purpose, um, which I think I, I think about a lot. I'm someone who's, I should say, very obsessed with Oprah and all of her advice. And I try to be really intentional. So I'm sorry that I didn't go on your podcast when you asked me initially. <laughs> but for me, it was really like, let me just put my head down and do this work. Because again, I'm grounded, I have to tell you, by talking to my family every day who like were like yes of course like it's amazing that you are that you're being called out for this and that you're doing this and then at the same time I'm talking to them about how are they paying their rent and such and such is in the hospital and we're not going to know if this person's going to make it and they're worried they don't have enough ventilators those are the things that ground me so it's like yes you can take a kind of victory lap and say this is great that I that I'm getting recognition for doing my job with integrity but then you're also grounded in the idea that so many Americans don't even have time to take victory laps because people were just trying to survive My conversation with Yamish Alcindor continues after this. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? 
State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Do you think that Donald Trump has a particular problem with women journalists and even more specifically with black women journalists? It's hard for me to answer that question. I know some people will say yes because of, you know, obviously there was that one week where he attacked me and then he attacked April Ryan, who wasn't even standing in front of him. And then he attacked Abby Phillip, um, who's a good friend of mine. But I also think that I watched him attack men in some really, really vicious ways. I think about Jonathan Carl um, and Peter Alexander. So, you know, I'm not sure I'm the the best person to answer that question. I definitely think I know that some people think he has a particular... um, biting sense with with women of color. I think having watched him, I also think that he is ready to attack anyone. And especially, I would say, um, people who he feels like are are checking him, are, are really exposing his inability to, to tell the truth at times. Um, and I think about the fact that, I think about Leslie Stahl a lot at CBS um, and the interview that she did where he got up and walked away. And then you think right. about uh, about what that meant, that he would walk out on a woman journalist. I don't remember him walking out on any men. I could be wrong. But I think that that, that is a window into something there. But I, in some ways, as a journalist, in some ways, I, rever- I reserve the idea to know whether or not um, what's going on in President and former President Trump's head is specifically focused on women and women of color, or whether it's it's focused on anyone who's exposing the fact that he's not at times telling the truth. When someone cuts you off on the highway, do you maintain your calm then too? <laughs> uh, do I maintain? Is that my just calm? the way you are, or you work hard at it at the journalism job? I definitely work hard at it at the journalism job, but I also, I mean, I'm now married for three years. <laughs> um, and anyone <laughs> I think who's married, right? Everyone who's married also realizes that you have to realize that you're living with, that you're a flawed human being and that you're living with a flawed human being and that you've signed a contract to say we're going to live together for the rest of our lives. So I think that the sense of calm that I feel um, has to be sort of in other parts of my life. And I also think that, frankly, if we even zoom out, it's the way that Black people have survived, right? Like, 
I didn't learn to be calm just because I think for me personally, maybe other people who aren't African American um, have their other experiences that I think are are the way that the way that they figure out to be calm. But as an African American, you're taught to be calm because it's life or death. My brother, my husband, six feet black men, they have to be calm. You think of Omar getting arrested on CNN and calmly explaining, "I'm on live television. I'm a reporter." I'm sorry. You're under arrest. Okay. Do you mind whoa, whoa, telling whoa, whoa, whoa. me why I'm under arrest, sir? You see the interactions and realize that Black people in particular, I think people of color, I know my friends who are Pakistani and who are, who are Middle Eastern, they also have a very sense of calm at the airport um, when they're possibly being harassed and possibly being targeted. I remember after 9-11, my, my, some of my dear friends, they had to be very calm. Because it it was that or 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 something much much worse. So I think my level of calm has been yes, it's because of of being a journalist, but I think a lot of it is also life experiences. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. So you just came back from a trip with President Biden, his first overseas trip as president. Can you just describe like how it works with the the journalism group accompanying a sitting president on such a momentous trip like that? Do you sleep at all? Do you stay in the same hotel as the president? How do you fly there? Do you have the schedule in advance? Just Could you paint a picture of what that trip is like? Yeah. So there are really two groups of journalists. There's the journalists who are part of the protective pool, which is this group of journalists who stay with the president at all times, um, except for when he's literally at the at the White House sleeping. Um, that protective pool flies on Air Force One. Um, they go to to whatever meetings he's going to, either he's they're in the meeting or they're in holding in a room somewhere very close by. They are um, with the president at all times. They're not usually sleeping in the same hotel. From my understanding, most sometimes the president's sleeping somewhere else, but they're um, nearby in a different hotel. And then I was part of a, a kind of extended pool of reporters who were flying on a press charter. It was, a, it was still organized by the White House, but that's a separate plane. We were on that plane. Um, you don't get much sleep because there are all sure. sorts of security sweeps. Um, you don't get to really see the cities that much. Uh, we were in in the UK for a while, so I was able to walk around and get some good Indian food at one point. But where'd for the you, most wait, part, where'd you go for Indian food? God, we were in Cornwall. Um, I forgot what the name of the restaurant is, but I was just wandering around and googling <laughs> Indian food on my on my phone because I couldn't eat beans or meat with pastries. Not one more time. <laughs> um, so I was frantically just looking for for Indian food, and I found it. Thank God. Um, and then in Brussels, I basically didn't see Brussels at all because we were in there. It was NATO. We, it was so quick. Um, we hardly slept again. But you were staying in the hotel room. You wake up really early. You have the president's schedule of what he's going to do. So you're watching all of his interactions um, for the summit in Switzerland. I really didn't see Switzerland because I was up. I basically slept probably three hours that entire trip um, between because you're on East Coast time. So I was doing hits at one or two o'clock in the morning in Swiss time and right. then getting up at like three or four or I would say doing hits at like one o'clock in the morning and then waking up at like four or five in the morning um, to to then start the day on Swiss time um, and go to heading to the summit. So um, it's 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 a kind of grueling schedule. Usually at, after these, you see at least some journalists. I know I did it when I when I when I went to Europe 
with President Trump, you would then take a week to go to Paris and, and kind of enjoy Europe. But because of the coronavirus and all the regulations, I couldn't do that this time around. Um, but that's kind of the, the, the good stuff on the back end. But at the end of the day, it's also, of course, you get the sense of incredible honor, right? Like I saw President Putin and President Biden in person about 10 feet away from me, right? Like you're witnessing this incredible history. Um, so I think it's also this, this kind of out-of-body experience where you're saying like, wow, I'm really here. I mean, let's think about Rachel Scott, who is just, I mean, so amazing. This ABC News reporter, young Black woman. Um, she was able to, to to question someone who President Biden has called a dictator, who was, who was jailed an opposition leader to say... The list of your political opponents who are dead, prisoned, or jailed is long. Alexei Navalny's organization calls for free and fair elections, an end to corruption. But Russia has outlawed that organization, calling it extremists. And you have now prevented anyone who supports him to run for office. So my question is, Mr. President, what are you so afraid of? I mean, those are those are just incredibly historic moments that that we'll think about for the, for the rest of our lives. And I, I think about Rachel all the time because she's a young reporter, such a smart and amazing reporter. And she's able she was able to kind of really write her way into history. Let's talk about the substance of the meeting further to what you just said or the various meetings. You said before the trip, quote, President Biden for his first overseas trip as commander in chief is really coming to a group of European leaders who are familiar with him. Experts tell me this is going to be a sort of love fest, (laughs) but it's also going to feel like a family reunion. And if anyone's ever been to a family reunion, that means there will be love, but there will also be drama. Did that bear out? It did. Uh, There was obviously this real relief among European leaders. I'd only covered NATO and G7s um, when President, when former President Trump was in office. I'd never covered any other ones. So they were these kind of really hectic things where people were fighting and people were getting elbowed. And it was just, it was just, I would, people, (laughs) other journalists would tell me this is not normal. And I'd be like, what is going on? Like we're nowhere near the schedule. Did you witness Biden elbow any world leaders? He elbow bumped people. (laughs) (laughs) As a greeting. (laughs) As a greeting, but he did not elbow anyone out of the way. So so I think there was this real love fest and there was this familiarity. Um, There was also this sense that, yes, there are real questions about how to move forward on climate change and how to move forward with how to treat China. This was the first time we saw China um, called out in the G7 communicate, but there's still real questions about how much to engage in in it with the 5G and Huawei and whether or not President Biden can convince some of the other European leaders to see China in the way that he does, which is really as an adversary and as a country that needs to be called out regularly about its human rights violations. Um, so I think there was a little, just a, a tiny bit of drama, not anything like um, when former President Trump was there. Was it palpable to journalists and other bystanders that the mood and the tone in the European meetings was more jovial? I mean, how 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 clear was it? It was pretty clear. I mean, President Biden, of course, said America is back over and over again. And I remember the French president, Emmanuel Macron, he uh, said, yeah, we're so happy to have America, you know, back in the fold, basically. It wasn't his his exact words, but and he had this kind of real smile on his face and they were meeting by the beach. They just looked like they were so happy. Angela Merkel, she wants to talk, she wanted to talk about Afghanistan and kind of other things that were going on in terms of of defense. But she also looked like someone who was like, okay, I can deal with this American president. So the, 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 the tone change was absolutely palpable. And did everyone go sing karaoke afterwards? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> do you think, do you think that Joe Biden and his team felt like they accomplished whatever goals they set out to accomplish on this trip? 
Yes, I can say that with confidence because I've talked to a number of White House officials after the trip, and they feel really good about the way that it went. They feel really good about the way that President Biden was able to to really get in there, meet with European leaders, get some of his personal, um, and, the, and the, I should say personal, meaning his personal goals for the country, into documents like the G7 communique that mentioned China, that mentioned Russia, that mentioned forced labor, which was something that, that the United States in particular was pushing for to call out um, China and its use of forced labor. So they feel really good about it, and they also feel really good about the about the uh, the summit. They like the they are, they're very confident that there should have been two separate press conferences so that the American press could get their questions to Biden, and that President Putin was able to get pushed um, in that way by so many people, including, of course, I have to just keep saying Rachel Scott because she's just so amazing. So I think that that they feel really good about the way that the meeting went and the way that the trip went, and in particular the meeting with Putin. Did you have a view as to whether or not, as a journalist, would you have? had a preference for a joint press conference with Biden and Putin? Does it not matter? Is it something that is up to the individual politicians? And so who cares? It's a great question. I have, I honestly hadn't really thought about it. I mean, I think that the point of it all is that they they get to, that, that journalists get their questions in and that we get to push and press politicians and, and leaders. And so I think that if that is the goal, then it was accomplished. So I, I maybe it would have also been accomplished in a joint press conference, but does Rachel Scott get to to push back and have a follow-up and be one of the few American journalists embedded if Putin is in there with President Biden? No. So that moment doesn't happen. So I think that that's really powerful. I think it's great that I was able to get three questions into the president um, and and to get him to really... And I think that we also got the president, former that is President Biden, responding directly to President Putin. So I think that that was still accomplished. It was really important to me to, to, to get a question in about whether or not President Biden um, felt it was appropriate for President Putin to be comparing the human rights violations in Russia to January 6th and invoking the name of the Black, of Black Lives Matter. Mr. President, when President Putin was questioned today about human rights, he said the reason why he's cracking down on opposition leaders um, is because he doesn't want something like January 6th to happen in Russia. And he also said that he doesn't want to see groups formed like Black Lives matter. What's your response to that, please? <laughs> so I think that the goals were accomplished. Wait, so I was about to ask you about that. What did you think of Putin's comparisons to January 6th and Black Lives Matter? So I'm a journalist, so I am not here <laughs> to really give my opinion. You don't have a view. <laughs> All right, but you have a view, but you don't think it's appropriate to give it. I don't think that's the role of journalists. Yeah, I get it. Do you have a sense of how Putin and his people thought the meeting went, were they disappointed or did they get some limited amount of success on their terms also? So I'll say I haven't talked to anyone in Putin's administration, um, but I will say just in watching what you saw from President Putin is what he has always done, which is he has always kind of done this whataboutism when pushed on human rights, when pushed on uh, the, the fate of Alexei Navalny. So it's out, and, and the fact that he kept on going and kept on taking questions it seemed as though he he had some real objectives that were met. And I I can't tell whether or not they thought it was a good idea to put him in front of a bunch of American journalists who would ask him questions like, what are you so afraid of, right? <laughs> right. I don't know what that is like. I, it would be great to get some reporting on that, um, from especially from some international journalists, because I am really, really interested to see what do they think about the fact that Rachel got that question in? And is it, what does that mean for him? Because I think in some ways um, it could be seen as embarrassing for him, but I think maybe in some ways it could be seen as, as the press, you know, being disrespectful. So I'm not sure 
sure how it's playing out in his administration. You were in Helsinki, correct? I was in the room. <laughs> in the room where it <laughs> happens. Yeah. And, you know, the Helsinki trip, when President Trump, among other things, appeared to take the word of Putin over his own intelligence agencies. And there was a weird back and forth about, you know, Trump believing Putin didn't have anything to do with election interference. People came to me, Dan Coates came to me and some others. They said they think it's Russia. Uh, I have uh, President Putin. Uh, he just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be. What was the, how do you compare Helsinki to Geneva just in terms of feel of the room? I mean, it was completely different. Um, I think former President Trump and President Putin's uh, press conference in 2018 was shocking, like to the system. <laughs> I remember gasping at, because you would never really heard an American president say, we take the word over of, of, uh, uh, of someone who is a human rights violator for all <laughs> intents and purposes, who has, yeah. it seems, killed number, a number of his political opponents and literally tried to attack the U.S. elections. Um, you've never seen a, pre a U.S. president, at least in my lifetime, take the word of that person over U.S. intelligence agencies. And not just one, like multiple. It was like 17 U.S. intelligence agencies, something like 17. So I just think it was it was really really shocking, and I remember talking to administration officials after the fact, and they were cringing. They could they were trying to come up with ways to kind of defend the president, but they, they you could tell that they hadn't even gotten their talking points together, and it was just so shocking. So that was completely different from President Biden's press conference, where where we were trying to obviously kind of dig for things and and get a sense of what was going to come out of this and how he was going to measure success. But it wasn't there was no I think moment where you thought, oh, my God, he's taking the word of Putin over his own government. And completely different view from the aides of the current president after Geneva. I would say, I mean, the White House aides, 95 percent of them, when they were in the Trump administration, um, if they were going to talk to them on the record, they would back the president up. So there was this sense, I would say, that they still backed President Trump up and kind of figured out a way to defend it. We think of Kellyanne Conway and so many others. Um, of course, on background, some of them were were definitely not um, always as supportive. But I think from, I mean, so, so I think there's that. So I, they weren't, of course, as I think confident um, sounding as the Biden administration aides were, because I feel like President Biden laid out exactly what he wanted to do before he got to the meeting. And then you could ask them exactly what he accomplished after the meeting. You commented on Twitter as have others, about the fact that the Putin-Biden meeting was expected to be four to five hours, and mm -hmm. it was not nearly that long. Do you make anything out of that? I, I, in some ways, lean on what the president said, which is after two hours, they looked at each other and said, what's next? <laughs> what's next, right? <laughs> Right. We've all been in a, a in a meeting, right? We've all been in a meeting that could have been an email, right? So, um, so in some ways, it, it it feels like both men came there. They were concise, they were efficient, and they didn't have time to waste. And they came there, they did what they needed to do, and then they left. Yamiche Alcindor, thank you for your service. Congratulations on the new assignment at Washington Week, and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. My conversation with Yamish Elsindor continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership free for two weeks, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. 
So I want to end the show this week by talking about a very interesting, impactful, and meaningful dinner I had two weeks ago. Many of you may know about it, but I thought I'd give you a recap and tell people who maybe did not hear about it what the dinner was all about. But before I talk about the dinner, we should go back in time where the story begins. And the story begins with a very ill-considered, awful tweet by a gentleman by the name of Tom Nichols, who back in 2019 tweeted in response to someone asking for bad food takes on Twitter. Tom Nichols posted, I think Indian food is terrible and we pretend it isn't. (laughs) So every time I read that, I shake my head. It's a terrible tweet. It's a terrible sentiment. He's not just saying in that tweet, I don't like Indian food, although I think that's what he meant to say only. He's suggesting that a billion people and more pretend they like it and they don't. So it was very insulting to a lot of people. Tom Nichols is a kind of a curmudgeon of a guy. He's a smart man, an academic, and a conservative who doesn't like Donald Trump. So I applaud him for that. And in the aftermath of posting that tweet, he heard it from all sides, people who are of Indian origin, people not of Indian origin who like Indian food, and people generally who didn't understand the ridiculousness of his sentiment. So there was a firestorm about it on social media. And I joined in by criticizing Tom Nichols somewhat good-naturedly. But then I also reached out to him privately and suggested a year and a half ago that next time he was in New York, maybe I could change his mind, persuade him to be more open-minded about the cuisine of the country of my birth. Because surely there's something he would like in a cuisine that, by the way, features multiple, multiple kinds of food from different regions and about a million dishes. So from time to time, we would interact with each other. Then COVID happened. And as we started to come out of the coronavirus, I reached out to Tom a couple of months ago. And I said, you know, we we still have to have that dinner. And eventually he said he would come to New York and we would have dinner. So I was very excited about this dinner. I picked one of the great Indian restaurants in New York on 20th Street called Sona that features a mix of traditional Indian food and also more cutting edge food. And I began to think about the strategy that I would employ to persuade Tom Nichols, because as you may know, I'm a competitive guy and I like to succeed, especially where other people have failed. So I felt some amount of pressure to make sure that the dinner went okay and that an honest Tom Nichols would have his mind changed at least somewhat. And the day before we had dinner, I thought, you know, another great thing we might do is maybe raise some money for a good cause. And I've been speaking for a number of weeks, as you know, about the disaster that is COVID in India where although in this country it's, it's getting better in the United States, in most regions, it's a ravaging disaster in India and lots and lots of people are suffering, including members of my extended family and people who my dad went to school with. And so kind of on a lark, the day before dinner, we set up a GoFundMe through which every dollar that we raised would go to a global nonprofit group called Indiaspora, which has been doing a fundraising drive for India and providing funds and resources, including to the Wish Foundation, and some other institutions in India to help with COVID relief. So we were going to have this dinner with this curmudgeonly white guy who says everyone hates Indian food, but along the way, raise some funds for COVID relief in India. And our modest thought at the time was, if we're lucky and things go well and people pay attention, maybe we'd raise a couple of thousand dollars for COVID relief in India. Much to my surprise, after tweeting about it a couple of times and Tom tweeting about it, by the time we sat down for dinner, before he'd even ordered a bite or a drink, the GoFundMe had already raised $30,000 in COVID relief. So that was a promising beginning. You should know that in my competitiveness, I didn't embark on this ordeal alone. I enlisted one of the owners of the restaurant, Manish, who had a consultation with the chef himself, understanding this was an important project, that we had to change Tom Nichols' mind. 
And so people have asked what the strategy was for the evening. And along the way, some people suggested that we should ply Tom with the most spicy dishes. We should give him vindaloo. We should make his mouth explode. That went against my strategy. I'm a conciliatory person and I wanted to succeed here. And so my thinking was that over the years, Tom had probably been taken to Indian restaurants. And you know, your palate is your palate. There are Indian dishes that I don't like too. There are Italian dishes that I love and some that I don't love. Same is true in any cuisine. And by happenstance, perhaps Tom had only had a certain kind of food. It was clear to me that he can't really handle spicy food. Not much you can do about that. That happens sometimes. And it also seemed apparent that he has some aversion to some ingredient in curry. Now, there's a lot of curry in Indian food, and I love curry. And it's maybe one of my favorite things when it comes to Indian cuisine. But there are many other things too. So I thought we'd try curry. We would keep things not very spicy in consultation with the chef. And we would order a lot of things. I think we ordered enough food for about seven people, even though there were just two of us, to see what he would like and what he might not like. So it began well enough. We ordered at first classic street Indian food, depending on where you're from in India, called Pani Puri or Golgappa, which he thought was fine. He said he wouldn't order it again, but it was fine. Did not offend him. And then we ordered other appetizers along the way. And we kept ordering and ordering. And we gave updates on social media. Tom, from time to time, would take a video and post it on Twitter. All right, so we're checking in. And um, we've gotten through the appetizers and some small plates. And I'm here with three. All right, so Tom, how is it so far? I feel like you've enjoyed many, but not all, of the dishes. Yeah, the, there was a kind of a hot finish to the shrimp that I had a little trouble with there. But um, you enjoyed many... Just go with me here. You enjoyed many of the dishes. <laughs> yes. We will check in with you. We're about to order main courses and really chow down. So we will, we will check we'll, in. We'll be back. All right. We'll, we'll see you in a bit. I would also take to Twitter. At one point, I tweeted, so Radio Free Tom has to recharge his phone. While we're alone, I can report that he actively liked many dishes, neutral on others, and no on really only one thing. And then I added, the breads are arriving. The breads, by the way, are very unoffensive. We ordered chapati and naan and paratha, and I think he liked all of those too. And then came the moment of truth. Tom tweeted at 10.03 p.m., we have a winner. The first thing I would order again, and could even imagine having a craving for at some point, lamb biryani. Curse you, Preet Bharara. Who doesn't like a good lamb biryani? At 12.57 a.m., this was a late dinner, Tom tweeted, So to summarize the hashtag Indian Food Summit, I have gone from who could like this to if you guys want to go out for Indian tonight, I'm good with that because I know there's stuff I'd like. For a provincial guy like me, that's a big change. Kudos to Chef Hari and Preet Bharara. I knew that when I insulted the cuisine of a billion people, there would be a day of reckoning. And that day has arrived. (laughs) It's today, Tom. If that's your real name. As Tom later wrote in a USA Today piece about our dinner, at one point during the meal, we paused to check the status of the GoFundMe. It was now over $50,000. And as he writes, quote, Preet and I looked at each other in disbelief, but if people were going to keep donating, I was going to keep eating. By the time we finished the dinner and went home, we had $75,000 in funds raised for COVID relief in India. As of this recording, we have raised, if you can believe it, $134,000 for COVID relief. To give you some sense of where that money can go and how much good it can do, Indiaspora is giving funds to the Wish Foundation, and with the money that we've raised, they will be able to build a full 10-bed center 
In another partnership, with the money we've raised, they will be able to provide more than 250,000 meals. In connection with a third partnership, Indiaspora will be providing direct $400 cash transfers to families who have lost primary breadwinners. All we did was have a meal and tweet about it and raised $134,000. So all in all, a pretty good night, pretty good conversation, and a pretty good cause served. As Tom writes in his USA Today piece, quote, I began this adventure by offending a billion people. And when it was over, I learned about food, made new friends, and helped in a small way to alleviate the suffering of people in another country. That's a lot for one dinner. And while I had a tiny bit of heartburn in the morning, my actual heart, after a long spell of pessimism and concern, felt pretty good. End quote. Thanks to all of you for giving. Thanks to all of you who followed along. And I hope it's a, a small lesson that people who disagree with each other can come together, break bread, enjoy each other's company, that people can change their minds, and along the way do good things for other people. And a final note, it's not too late to donate. If you'd like to, a link to the GoFundMe is in the show notes. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Yamish Elsindor. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytunedatcafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe Studios and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tattashore. The CAFE team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozerstaden, Noah Azulai, Nat Weiner, Jake Kaplan, Jennifer Korn, Chris Boylan, and Sean Walsh. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the Future of Work, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Prop G Pod wherever you get your podcasts.